Uh, Merry Christmas, Colossae Beaverton. It's so good to be with you uh, this Christmas of 2020. Um, I'm glad you're here in person, or those of you who are with us on the live stream right now, glad, glad that you're with us as we celebrate the birth of Christ. Um, and here we are, Christmas Eve of 2020. What a year, right? This will go down in the books, I'm sure, for all of us. And I'm sure you have heard and said yourself, I can't wait for 2020 to be over, right? Um, the thing is, though, I was driving uh, the other night. Uh, I had to pick up something from the store, and uh, I was feeling nostalgic, so I was listening to Death Cab for Cutie's Transatlanticism from the early 2000s. And the opening track, New Year, opens with the lines, this is the new year, and I don't feel any different. Remember that just foreboding uh, line. And uh, that is, I, unfortunately, I think what many of us will feel like as the year turns over from 2020 to 2021. In fact, I, uh, what I would encourage us with is that what we're talking about tonight and what we're celebrating tonight is the only thing uh, that will change how we feel in the new year, if, that, if, if you get what I mean. Uh, the, the change of a date from 2020 to 2021 won't change a thing, but the presence of God, a passion for his kingdom, and a posture that receives him will actually change everything. And that's exactly what we find at Christmas as we look at Mary, as we look at her story and what was just read to us by the really, really cute kids of Colossae Beaverton. What we find in the Christmas story isn't a continuation of things just being the same year after year, but a cataclysmic kind of catalyst moment that changes history forever with the birth of Christ. And so that's what we, we celebrate. We celebrate, the, we celebrate presents at Christmas, but just with an uh, N-C-E, not an N-T-S. We celebrate the presence of God in the flesh. And we believe and proclaim that God has come to be present with us, taking on the form of our humanity and all of its vulnerability and weakness. And, uh, and he himself, our creator, experienced the relentlessness of death that humans experience and he changed it forever because he took that humanity into the grave and rose it up victorious and uh, incorruptible. But here's the thing. Uh, Christmas isn't just about a new year. It's actually about a new creation with God's presence defining that new creation. And so when I think about Christmas and we think about the Christmas story, I can't help but focus on Mary. To have a baby, you have to have a mom. Right? And that is uh, not an insignificant reality. I think it's incredible to me that the redemption story wasn't done in a vacuum. God didn't just drop in in a way that was incongruous with the rest of human life. But he actually brought about redemption in our story through a participant, through an agent who was willing to be someone used by God for the sake of God's kingdom. And so there was Mary, someone who received God in faith. Mary doesn't get a lot of play in Protestant churches, perhaps for uh, reasons of 
distortion maybe in other traditions. But what I would say is that Mary is a model Christian. She's the first one to respond in faith to the name of Jesus. And she models for us what it looks like to receive the presence of God. In fact, Mary, uh, what we, we often forget about Mary is that she is somebody who is a teenager. She's, we see the art, you know, the frescoes and the things that it, all the, the, the Dutch painters painted. And it's, she's always this serene, kind of glowing woman who's kind of somber, not that happy, can't have Mary too happy, can't have the mother of God very happy. That would somehow be a problem, I guess, for the 15th and 16th century painters. But what we have to remember is that this first century Jew was about most likely 14 years old because that was when first century Jewish women married and had babies. And her name is translated as Mary, but her name is Miriam in the Greek text, which signals back to us an earlier part of the story. Moses' sister is named Miriam. And so Luke is telling us that there's a new Miriam who's about to introduce to us a new, greater Moses. That just like uh, Israel was delivered through someone, Moses, now Israel will again be delivered again, but by the greater Moses. What's interesting, though, to me is you don't have a Moses without a Miriam. You don't have an Exodus story without that little girl ensuring that Moses got to the right destination. In the same way, you don't have a Jesus without a Mary. And she is receptive to God in a profound way. She's this teenager who is used by God in a a profound way, not to see Israel delivered from slavery to Pharaoh, but all humanity delivered from the tyranny of sin and death. These twin destructive forces that bring sorrow and chaos and loss to every one of us. And so what do we learn from Mary as we look at her story uh, this Christmas? How do we play our part like Mary played her part in God's story? Three simple but absolutely world-changing things I want to show you tonight. Uh, Things that as we look at the new year, if we embrace, we will in fact feel different. Uh, And so I want to show you tonight how Mary shows us how to discern God's presence, how to sing passion for God's kingdom and has a posture to receive God himself. The first thing we see in her story is that she's met by a heavenly messenger, an angel who says grace to you. When he says favored one, it's graced one. It's the one who is receiving grace. Uh, And so what Mary does is she responds, right? She responds to this message and she's confused. She says that she couldn't quite make sense of it. This is how grace always confronts us. We live in a world that says, try harder, be better, win over other people. And you win by being better than other people, by performing and outdoing everyone. And to be greeted by an angel who says, you're a graced one, is to flip all that on its head. It's to be greeted by God, not for your performance, but because of his choice. Uh, Sometimes we struggle to know that God is with us, and we think, is God really present in my life? And and maybe we're tempted to think, if I just did more for him, if I just performed better, and that's Santa Claus theology, isn't it? Because he's making a list, he's checking it twice to see if you're naughty or nice. And that's not a theology of grace, it's a theology of work hard enough, and then you'll be good enough. 
This is not the greeting of God's presence to Mary. The greeting of the presence of God to Mary is grace to you. You're favored, you're graced. The true presence of God always comes in the presence of grace. The God who comes and says, you don't do anything for me. Uh, Favor is free, grace is unearned. It's the shining smile of God on those who are absolute freeloaders. Her response is to be troubled. To be, she tried to discern the kind of greeting this was, but that's, that's how grace always meets us. It, it confronts us. It's troubling. It goes against our presumptions of earning something. It staggers us, and it confronts the religious person and the irreligious person and says, the only ones welcome here are the freeloaders. And so how do we learn to discern the presence of God at Christmas? It's to learn to listen for the word of grace, not the word of try harder to be better. So much of our world is tearing itself apart in judgment over the other, over disagreements of all kinds. But God says, I'm here in this space of grace. What if this Christmas we met Christ as we gave grace to our family members and to the people who haven't earned and have even unearned some things from us. But what if the quiet presence of God is there as we give favor that isn't earned through performance? Will you discern God's presence this Christmas through grace freely offered to you? A God who says, you can't actually be good enough or bad enough for me. The message of the angel who proclaims grace is, don't be afraid. That's what grace does. It says, don't actually be afraid here in this relationship because I've dealt with what is wrong here. Verse 31 says, and behold, you will conceive. She's questioning, right? She's in, how is this going to happen? Right? And he says, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus and he will be great and called the son of the most high. This is a language, language for a king. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. You want to know what grace looks like? Grace looks like a vulnerable child who is also a king. And so this grace that looks like a king who has a throne leads us to the next thing I want to show you from Mary's story, uh, which is uh, that it teaches us how to sing passionately for God. Mary shows us how to discern God's presence in a word of grace, and she also teaches us to sing passionately for God. You see, if God comes as a king, that means he has an administration. He has a rule. He has a way of ordering things. And that is to order the world according to justice. The kingdom means an administration, a governance of the king. And Mary, being a good first century Jew, knew very well that the world was out of sorts, that God wasn't on the throne if Rome was their oppressor. And one of the great poems and songs of the Bible erupts from Mary's lips here in Luke chapter 1. It's called the Magnificat because in Latin, it's the first word of the poem, which is magnify. My soul, she says, magnifies God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, she says, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. And why is she singing? Because, she says, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, his holy name, uh, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. That's an old term from Exodus about what God was going to do to Pharaoh and what Jesus will do to the grave. 
He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, and he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the humble, the poor. And he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy and he's, that he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offsprings forever. And so what's Mary singing about? The scattering of the proud, the elevation of the poor and the humble. There's been a great reversal that's happened in the birth of Jesus. That God has not only come near, but he's come near to run his world with justice and, uh, and, and mercy. And Mary has a passion for the justice of this kingdom, and she sings about it. Jesus, this grace-filled king, is not coming to kiss up to the powers, but to overthrow them through his humility, to come and heal the sick and to feed the poor and to transform the world with a community that loves each other and does justice and lives generously. See, that passion of Mary, this song that she sings for the longing for the kingdom and all of its justice, was actually a song that was answered for her. That prayer was answered paradoxically because Mary, she struggled throughout her son's ministry, throughout Jesus's ministry. There was times where she was confused by it. She said, Jesus, will you just come home? Will you stop saying crazy things? Will you stop embarrassing the family? But eventually she got it. Eventually she got how this king would bring justice to the world. It would be through his death. And it's there at the cross of Jesus that John recounts this story where he looks at his mom from the cross and he says, mother, your son, behold, your son. He points to John, his disciple, his follower, his student. And he looks at John and he says, John, behold your mother. Right, what's he doing there? Well, on one hand, he's a good Jewish boy and he's taking care of his mom because his dad's probably already dead. And so how's he going to make sure she's still cared for as someone who is a widow in a society where there's, there are no checks coming from Jerusalem to help her out. It's going to be John. So it's practical on one hand, but it's deeply profound on another because what he's saying is there's a new family. This is a new family at the foot of the cross where Mary and John, now you are family because of my death. And so that's what he does. He creates a new community. This is how her her prayer is answered, and surely Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there in the room in Acts chapter 2, praying with the other disciples as the Spirit of God fell at Pentecost, and was there in the room in Acts chapter 4 when Luke reports that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. This is a miracle, by the way, of the Spirit of God, just like raising Jesus from the dead so creating generosity in people. Verse 33, it says, With great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord, and the grace of God was upon them all. This is the kind of story that Mary got to see happen. That her longing, her song, her passion for God's presence and kingdom was fulfilled as this little community in Jerusalem this humble crew who worshipped a crucified king shared everything that was theirs. And so certainly now her, her song has come full circle and it's being lived out in this spirit-filled community. The proud are humbled because their king is crucified. The hungry and the poor are fed because the king has a people who share what's theirs. This is how Mary teaches us to have passion for God. It's a passion for his justice lived out in a community of generosity. And then last of all, we see in Mary a posture. 
a posture that's appropriate for receiving God's presence and joining in his passion. And so how do we enter a story like Mary, a story of God redeeming the world and and creating a passion for his justice in us? It's modeled here in what she says in response to the angel's message. The message of the angel is there's going to be a king and he'll have a community, right? He's going to save the people. And she says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So she teaches us the posture of somebody who's receptive to God. This is what Christmas is about. Christmas is about the presence of God coming with us, his justice through his kingdom, and those of us who are willing in faith to receive it. And that's what it looks like. She says, I'm the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to the word of the Lord. You remember the Beatles song, Let It Be? Well, Paul McCartney got it halfway right, right? It is Mother Mary saying, let it be. But the reality is she's saying, let your word, what you have to say, God, be true in my life. Let it be to me according to your word. So this Christmas, we recognize that the new year may not feel that different. Somebody uh, said to me a few months back, like, I'm so ready for 2020 to be over. And I did say, and it was kind of, maybe it wasn't okay. um, But I did say, what if it's just the beginning of the 2020s? And she was like, no. Like, but it could be right? And, you know, it's like, no, Matt, shut up. Like, don't, don't say that, you know. But what if, what if we are actually not looking at circumstances to be the good news? What if instead we looked at what happened at Christmas, this presence of God, this passion for his kingdom, this receptivity in a posture that says, I'll be a servant. I'll be honored to do what God wants. What if that was true? Would that change anything for you? Would that change anything in your life? Would you feel any different knowing that God was present through his grace, that he infinitely accepted you? Would that change any anxieties in you as you approach a new year, knowing that he accepts you not because of your performance, not because your moral record, not because your bank account, not because you've, you've done every workout, not because of the likes on your feed, but because He infinitely accepts you on the merit of his son, on grace and grace alone. You can't be good enough for him. You can't be bad enough for him to love you as you are. You can only find his presence in his grace. Would that change anything for you in this new year? What if we enter the new year having uh, taken Mary's passion into ourselves and said, I also long for a community of justice, a community that lives generously like that Acts 4 community? What if we thought this next year, not how can I get further ahead, but how can I be more open-handed to God? What do you want with my life and my stuff and my energy and my priorities and my time, my words and my relationships? Would that change anything for you? To say, I want to long for what Mary longed for. It may mean that we re-examine our passions. Would it change anything if you said, I'm passionate not about my own story alone, but I'm passionate about the kingdom story, a story of justice embodied in a community that says, everything's not mine, but I'm here amidst God's church to give what's mine for the sake of the kingdom in my city. And then lastly, what if we embraced a posture of Mary, the posture of servanthood and surrender, Because 
that's ultimately how you receive a king, as a servant. We don't receive a king as his peers because we're not kings or queens, right? We don't receive a king as an auditor to say, well, let me check you out. Make sure you're in line with my values. We receive a king, receive a king as a servant. And we say to the king, let it be to me according to your word. And if we enter this season that way, in the way of Mary, then I believe that this new year will feel truly different. And so that's what we say symbolically as we sing songs here uh, in response to God's stories coming present to us and we light candles. What we're saying is that at Christmas, the presence of God and his grace came and it is the light of the world. And as we behold the light of the world in Christ, it spreads among his people who yearn passionately for his kingdom, for his justice to be embodied in communities of faith all around the globe and who say, send us out as people who surrender to your word, that we would be a light to your world. This is why we light the candles at Christmas. If you're watching from home, you can light a candle and put it out whenever you want. But here, uh, I'm going to ask that you hold your candle straight up and then somebody will bring a candle lit to you and then you just it just spreads out that way, okay? So take the unlit candle, match it to the standing up candle. Otherwise, we drip wax all over a church that's not ours, and we want to leave it better than we found it. So just like we want to leave the world around us better than we found it as the light reflected by the Spirit of God through his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for Mary's story and her example and all that it teaches us. We want to be people who are so receptive to you in her posture, so passionate for your kingdom and discerning of your presence. Thank you, Christ, for coming, for dying, for rising, being raised up, for sending your spirit, for coming again. You are our hope. Make us your light in your world. In Christ's name, amen.